Well, brethren, as you find your seats, find in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 5. Now, as we begin to read chapter 5, let me just say a few things by way of introduction concerning chapters 4 and 5. If you remember last week, in considering chapter 4, I mentioned several things of importance. First, chapters 4 and 5 form a single vision wherein John is allowed to look into heaven. So chapters 4 and 5 constitute one single vision. And this one single vision afforded John is of the activities that presently were taking place in heaven. Secondly, central to these two chapters and this single vision is the word throne, which reminded the church that God reigns. I said I think 13 times, 13 or 15 times in chapters 4 and 5, you have the term throne. And this, of course, brethren, underscores the fact that chapters 4 and 5 are foundational to everything that follows. Beginning with chapter 6 and onward, you're going to find that all the things that are happening, or largely that are happening, are happening on earth. And so what John is afforded is the reminder that while all of these things, beginning with chapter 6, are going to take place on earth, which include all manner of difficulty, hardship, tribulation, and persecution, all through which the churches of God have to endure, God sits on his throne. And that is the dominant point and the primary intention of these two chapters. And then finally, if you remember, while chapter 4 focuses upon the Father and his work of creation, chapter 5 focuses on Christ and his work of redemption. So in chapter 4, you have the focus upon the Father, who's seated upon his throne, and all of the inhabitants of heaven are praising him and worshiping largely for his sovereignty in creation. And now we're going to see in chapter 5, there's still the Father on the throne, and yet there's another one introduced to us that's at the center of the throne, and that is the lion and the lamb. And we're going to see that those in heaven, basically the same people of chapter 4, are worshiping the lamb, not so much for creation, but for recreation or for redemption. And so as we read through chapter 5, keep in mind this kind of additional word that somewhat takes central stage in chapter 5, and that is a scroll. We're going to see that a scroll is introduced to us in chapter 1 and really forms the heart of the chapter. Everything that happens in chapter 5 happens in relation to this scroll. Verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll 
or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Now let's look at this chapter under these three heads. We have first a scroll in verse 1, and then a question concerning that scroll in verses 2 to 7, and then we have a threefold response in verses 8 to 14. So the first thing we have to do here, obviously, is identify the nature of this scroll. We find, according to verse 1, that the scroll was closed with seven seals. In order to open the scroll, the seals must be opened, something with, which begins in chapter 6, verse 1. And then actually the last, the seventh and last seal is opened up a little bit later in chapter 8, verse 1. Now it becomes rather evident, brethren, as we read through chapter 5 and even into chapter 6, 7, and 8, that the scroll represented the outworkings of God's redemptive purposes. And that's why it's written on both sides, very unusual. Scrolls were written on one side, not both sides. And the reason why there's writing on both sides is because the scroll contains everything that will happen. And uh, as we come to chapter 6 and following, we find out that that everything basically includes the advancement of the gospel, the, perse the persecution of God's people, the judgment of the wicked, 
and the ultimate and final salvation of the righteous. So when we began to look at the opening of the seals, we're going to find that the contents of the scroll are those four things. And it's important to keep in mind that those four things happen simultaneous to one another on earth while those in heaven are worshiping the Lamb. So it's not like there's chapters 4 and 5, worship in heaven, and then there's judgment on earth, chapter 6 and following. No, remember the whole purpose of allowing John to look into heaven in chapters 4 and 5 is to encourage the church that while they're enduring all that's taking place, chapter 6 onward on earth, God is reigning in heaven. And in fact, everything that they're enduring on earth, which we're going to see is severe hardship, tribulation, and persecution, in one sense or another, comes from heaven. And we're going to see that that ultimately means that God is sovereign over their tribulation. God is sovereign over their hardships. And this is to be an encouragement to them. Now that what I've said is true, I first appeal to, you, I first appeal to chapter 6 and following. Because there you find, without a shadow of a doubt, the contents of the scroll. Because as each seal is opened, something in the scroll comes out. And it's those four things, as we'll see, God willing, uh, beginning next week. But here I just want to appeal to some historical uh, support. Listen to a couple men. First of all, Simon Kistemaker. He said, the scroll reveals God's complete plan and purpose for the entire world throughout the ages from beginning to end. Richard Brooks, the scroll represents God's plan of history from eternity to eternity, a plan in which, of course, his church has a special part. And perhaps my favorite go-to guy, William Hendrickson, he says this scroll represents God's eternal plan, his decree, which is all comprehensive. It symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and concerning all creatures in all ages and to all eternity. And thus it's full of writing on both sides. So fundamentally, it refers to the outworking of God's eternal plans and purposes. And that, of course, becomes all the more evident here in a moment when we find that the only one worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals is the one who prevailed by his blood over our enemies. All right, that's the scroll. And that brings us secondly to the question. Verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And to loose its seals. This is the question. That is, who is worthy to implement or enforce God's redemptive purposes? Perhaps another way to ask the question, who is worthy to sit on the throne and govern the affairs of men? 
Brother, this is really what the question is. Who is worthy to sit on the throne of God and to govern the affairs of men? Well, who's worthy? Well, we find the answer in verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Not only was there nobody worthy to open it, there wasn't even anyone worthy to look at it. Now we're going to find in the next verse that there is one, and he isn't mere man, but he's the God-man. And the reason why he's worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals is because he's prevailed. Verse 4. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. These, of course, are Old Testament, beautiful Old Testament imageries. The root of David has prevailed. Now this word prevailed is the same one that we saw back in chapters 2 and 3. Regularly translated there, overcomes. Remember Jesus says to his churches over and again, he who overcomes will get this, will get that. Well, the reason why we overcome as his church and get those things is because one's already overcome. And then he identifies him further in verse 6 as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In other words, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And peculiar stress is placed upon his blood atonement, as we're going to see further when we get down to verse 9. And then he's described as having seven horns, and you know horns in scripture, in prophetic scripture, speaks of strength and authority. He's all-powerful, okay, And seven eyes. That means he's all-knowing. So he's all-powerful and all-knowing. And then his knowledge is identified specifically with the Holy Spirit. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now stop and think for a second. This word sent. When does or did he send the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost. After he went to heaven and sat on the throne as the one worthy. So he atones for our sins. He's raised on the third day. He goes back to heaven. He ascends back to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he sends out the Holy Spirit. So this also indicates that the Holy Spirit is in the world. And we're going to see, God willing, next week, when the first seal is broke, when the first seal is broke, there's a white horse that goes forward conquering, that is, saving sinners, i.e., by the powerful ministry of the Spirit. So we have this particular person identified as the Lamb, or as the Lion and the Lamb. Now, let me go back to this word prevail for a few minutes. I said that it's translated overcome earlier, right, in the seven seven letters. To prevail or to overcome. 
necessarily implies opposition. So the question then becomes, what did Jesus overcome and thus render him worthy of taking the scroll? Well, we get uh, uh, indication in terms of answering that question in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Now here's why he's worthy to open the scroll. Here's, Here's what he prevailed with. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Okay, so if he prevailed or overcame with his blood, then the next question is, what did he overcome with his blood but our enemies, sin, Satan, death, and the grave? He overcame them with his blood. And I think there's a a particular stress laid upon his resurrection. He conquered them because he's alive, right? This, this, This one who's worthy isn't dead. He's alive, i.e. he's been raised from the dead. He was dead, and that's indicated in two, in two phrases. He was, he's like a lamb that was slain, and he shed his blood, but now he's alive. He's victorious. He's overcome. He's prevailed. And because he's overcome, because he's prevailed, he's worthy to take the scroll. Okay, so just think in your mind for a moment of, of uh, Philippians 2. Remember, it speaks of him as God who considered it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God in every sense. And yet he came to earth as a man, as a servant, and was obedient to his father, to death, even to the cross. Okay, that's him shedding his blood. That's him being slain. And then it says, because of that, what? He's given a name above every name. And every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. It's saying the same thing, brother, just differently. He's worthy to receive this scroll and to loose its seals. He's worthy to receive this praise and adoration because of what he's done. Because he's prevailed. Because he's conquered. Because he was victorious. Because he overcame all of our enemies and was raised on the third day in vindication of that victory. He overcame as the lion and the lamb. As the God-man who shed his blood for our redemption. And brethren, there's probably no fewer places in the There's fewer places in the Bible that rival this first song in verses 9 and 10 in terms of Jesus' redemptive labors. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So he bought us out of that. And then verse 10... And positively, he's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's talking about when Jesus comes back. All right, so that brings us then thirdly to this response. Threefold response, in fact, beginning at verse 8. Now, beginning at verse 8 all the way to 14, the response to all of this is like 
uh, a rippling effect. Okay, you throw a rock in the, in the water and there's these ripples. So it starts first with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And then in verse 11 to the rest of the angels. And then in verse 13 to all of creation. Okay, this is kind of the progression. So let's, let's, let's look at it like this. The first song, the second song, and the third song. The first song is verses 8 to 10. And here we find the 24 elders further described as priests. Now remember the 24 elders last week we learned are who? Representate their representation of who? Of the elect. Of saints who've overcome. They're the 24 elders. And why is there 24? But because there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. In other words, this is all of God's elect from the Old and New Testaments. This is every Christian Old New Testament who's died in Jesus. Okay? And they're in heaven. And they're worshiping. But what's interesting is, as in chapter 4, so in chapter 5, they're described as priests worshiping God in the temple. Remember, we saw that imagery last week. They had long, um, long garments, and then there was all this other imagery that brought back the mind to the temple. Here, they're described as Oath Covenant Levites. And I say that uh, because the Old Covenant or Old Testament Levites first played on harps and they ministered in the tabernacle slash temple with golden bowls. And you find that they had both of those in verse 8. Each having, that is each of the 24 elders, had a harp and golden bowls. Okay, Now the golden bowls were used for various purposes in the tabernacle temple worship. But here he's mixing up the imagery a little bit because what's in these bowls was in the altar inside the temple, and that is incense. These golden bowls are full of incense. And then he tells us that this incense symbolizes the prayers of, of the saints. Now we know from the Psalms and other places that the incense inside the tabernacle and temple typified or shadowed the prayers of God's people. Remember that first room? Remember the tabernacle and temple had two rooms? One was bigger and the other was smaller? Well, in the bigger room, there was the, the seven armed candlestick or lampstand. There was a table of showbread, and then there was the smaller altar that burned incense every day, all day. And uh, all of these were beautiful shadows or, or pictures of the church, what takes place in the church. The priests served in that room, that's Christians, and they ate the bread they trimmed the, 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 lit, the wick and, and replenished the oil. They kept the light burning. And they also kept the incense burning. And all of those were beautiful shadows of our interaction and fellowship with God through his word and prayer. Okay? So the, the next question that has to be addressed is this. 
Why is it that the 24, or let me put it this way, whose prayers are these? Now we're going to see in the next chapter that uh, these prayers are in part theirs, the 24 elders. And I say that because they're going to be saying in chapter 6, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's what they're asking God in heaven, brethren. These are the, the martyrs. These are those perfected saints in heaven crying out to God day and night that he would avenge them. But I don't believe that these prayers are solely theirs. I think it's also just um, symbolic of all our prayers offered up to God even on earth. Now the problem with that interpretation might, you might know is uh, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, seizes upon this and says this, this is basically their go-to text to show that we are to pray to the saints in heaven who intercede for us. Right? We have to pray to Joseph and Mary. They're in heaven. So they say, it's wrong, but let's just go with it for a minute. We pray to them because they're the 24 elders before the throne. And as we pray to them, they take our prayers to God. Well, I don't think that's at all the point here. I think the point here is simply to say that there's one people of God. Some are in heaven and some are on earth and we're all praying. And all of our prayers, even those on earth, even those that we're going to offer up here in 15 minutes. Even those prayers make their way. Because we're priests already on earth. Right? It's not just those in heaven who are priests. We're all priests. And as we offer up our prayers in Jesus' name, they find their way to the throne of heaven. Brother, this really is, if you think about it, a tremendous text and beautiful imagery on the subject of prayer. And I think, I can't prove it, but I want to suggest to you that the author to the Hebrews, in the last verse of chapter 4, let us therefore come with boldness to the throne of grace, that we might, through prayer, get grace and mercy to help us in our time of need, is thinking of this. We're to come to the throne of grace. Brethren, isn't, what throne of grace is he talking about? The one in heaven. Do you mean to say that saints on earth in all of their difficulty and all of their problems as they humbly come by believing prayer to God through Christ have access to the throne room of heaven? Yes, that's exactly, I think, what we're learning here. Because we're priests and we're one with our brethren in heaven. They're victorious, we're militant, but we're one people. All right, that's the first song. Now the second song is in verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and elders. All right, so here's, here's a question. Last week we learned that the four living creatures were those privileged angels called cherubim. And the reason why I said that is because everywhere in the Old Testament, and especially in Ezekiel 10, 20, and 21, the four living creatures are expressly called the cherubim. 
Brother, it it makes sense, right, to use the Old Testament to help us understand the New Testament and especially the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is largely drawing right now from Ezekiel and Daniel. In fact, if you read through Daniel 7, you find out that that everything that's going on in chapter 6 or in chapter 5 is borrowed from Daniel 7. We just don't have the time to look at it. So... We find in verse 11 that there's the four living creatures. That's the special angels called the cherubim. And then there's the 24 elders. That's the representation of the Old and New Testament saints. And then there's the rest of the angels. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words, brethren, there was a lot of them. You can't even begin to calculate that. Don't even try to do the math. It's impossible. It's, and it's intentionally impossible, by the way. It's, it's, just a, it's just a way to say there was a number. This is how John puts it later on, remember? A number no man can count. That's the same number. And we're going to learn more about these uh, innumerable people in chapter 7. It's a, it's a description of the angels, uh, but I think it's even more directly a description of the saints. Brethren, there's a lot of people in heaven. I simply don't have much patience with the notion that we have to make the church smaller than it is. A lot of people do that. Unless you do this, unless you say that, unless you act this way, you're not a Christian. Brother, that's not Christian to be so quick to unchristian people. The Bible says there's hypocrites. I get it. I know that. I've read my Bible. But I also know that the prophets, and particularly the apostles, and even our Savior in the Scripture was very generous in his assessment of professing Christians. That's why when Paul wrote letters, he wrote to the saints at Corinth. Corinth, filled with all those messed up people. And yeah, he told them to make sure they were Christian. But he gave them the judgment of charity. And I think we would do well to follow that example. Because remember, brethren, Jesus said, with the same judgment you judge others with, so you'll be judged by Jesus. And I know we don't like that verse because so many Christians, professing Christians and even the world takes it out of context. But brethren, just because a lot of people misuse a text doesn't mean the text isn't still in the Bible. Judge not unless you be judged. For the same measure you judge another, So you'll be judged in the end. This text says there's a lot of people in heaven. This text says there's a lot of people in heaven. And not one of us have the right to be somehow the special gatekeeper into heaven. Nobody in the church is really a Christian unless I think so. No. They're a Christian if they profess to be so, and they're in good standing in the church. 
then you view them as a Christian until there's substantial reason to prove otherwise. Who are you, man? If God's people has accepted them, the eldership has accepted them, who are you not to? They don't have to come through the church. The church should recognize its own. And then you. It's not like they have to come through the elders and then the church and then you. Now if the church has received them, then you should likewise. And here's why. Because there's a lot of people in heaven. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Third song, verse 13 and 14. Here we find this massive choir extends beyond heaven to include every creature. Perhaps we can put it this way. All of non-moral creation. What do I mean by non-moral creation, Charles? Here's what I mean. Everything except man and the angels. Thank you for that answer. That was perfect. It was spot on, brother. Always can count on you. And that's why he says in verse 13, every creature which is in heaven. Who's in heaven? What's he mean by heaven? He means the stars and the, and the planets and, and, and the sun. And uh, on earth and under earth and in the sea. And all that's in the sea. Brethren, that's just another way of saying in an exaggerated way, all of creation. So all of creation, he heard saying, verse 13, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. He's he's speaking figuratively, brethren. These things, sometimes the scripture speaks of this creation as if it spoke. Okay, think of a couple phrases, a couple examples. What is John, uh, is it, or no, it's... um, Psalm 19, right? The heavens are declaring. Day to day they utter speech. Well, what is creation saying, brethren? Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. In other words, the redemption that Jesus secures includes not only a multitude no man can number taken from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. But it also includes, go back to that phrase at the end of 10, a new heavens and earth. And that's why he says, we're redeemed by his blood. He's made us kings and priests. And we're going to reign where? On the new earth. Brother, we're going to reign on the new earth. All creation, in a sense, in in this sense, benefits from Jesus' redemption. Because it's going to be redeemed. Now think back to uh, Romans 8. Do you remember that? Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation, now look, whole creation is, that's Romans 8, 22. It's the same as Revelation 5 and 13. Every creature whole creation, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 
In other words, it's laboring under the weight of this sin, anticipating its redemption. That's what it goes on to say. It's anticipating its renovation at Jesus' second coming. And that's why all creation, even now, brethren, if you go, and, and, and then for example, and then we'll close with some observations. If you were to go to the end of Psalm 96 and 7, for example, do you know what it says? Well, okay, let me just show you this, and then we'll go on to our observations. I'm not sure which one I want, so I'll start with, uh, what did I say, 96? It's one of them, and I think both of them. Psalm 96. Say among the nations, verse 10, the Lord reigns. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that's in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. And here's why, brethren. For he's coming, verse 13. Yeah, you do find it in, in 97 also. Beginning at verse, well, you find it also in 98, beginning at verse 7. Let the sea roar. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful, for he's coming to judge the earth. All right, so that's how this heavenly vision ends it ends with the redemption of the new heavens and earth quite tremendous isn't it all right well let's close with these applications or observations here's the first one all history is already written now you might ask, where do I get this observation? Well, brethren, it's kind of the whole thing. This is kind of the whole passage. The scroll, remember, it has writing on the outside and the inside. And remember I said the reason is there's writing on the outside and inside is because the scroll contains God's eternal purposes that he decreed in eternity past. Let me ask you this. How extensive was God's sovereign decree in eternity past. How much of what would happen did it include? Everything. He decreed everything, right? We believe that as Christians. He decreed the good things, the bad things, the big things, the small things, and everything in between. And all of that was written on the scroll. Here's my point. It's already decreed. It's already written. Now why, brethren, would John want these poor Christians to realize this? But it goes back to the application I made last week, and that is he wanted them to know that God's sovereign. Okay, in your mind, think with me. Chapter 6 is coming next week. And in relation to the first four um, seals that are broken, there's a horse. And there are four different colors. Pale is the last one. Black is the third, red is the second, and white is the first. And those underscore the salvation of God's people, the white horse. The gospel is going forward and, 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 and is conquering. 
Red horse represents what? Martyrdom, slaughter, Christians getting slaughtered. And the black is, uh, is oppression and tribulation. And pale is death, we're going to see, that we all have to endure. All, all, all of God's people have to go through all of those. And that's just the first four of the, of the seven seals. And then you got the trumpets and the bowls, which are basically going to say the exact same things. And you know what that is? Here it is in a nutshell. God's people get to heaven through tribulation. But you know what? That tribulation doesn't take God by surprise. Now, we go, through, we go to heaven through tribulation, okay? That means we're persecuted for our faith. But it also means, as we're going to see, Christians endure all manner of hardship. Because it's not just persecution. That's the red horse. It's also bereavement. It's also sickness. It's also financial distress. It's also relational controversy. All of that is found, as we're going to see, in the black horse and in the pale horse. And then you got the other seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And Christians have to go through all that. And what John is wanting them to know is this, brethren, that all of this is coming upon you because it's already written in the scroll. And who's the one who has the right to unloose the, the, uh, the, the seals to the scroll, but the one who's bought us with his blood. In other words, brethren, here it is. We endure all that's going to come, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. And my Christian friend, that means all of us. Woe be to the exegete who takes the church away and says that the church is gone. Well, that's what some Christians believe. We, we're taken away back in chapter 4. Brethren, that is a bunch of, let me think of a proper term. Here's a, here's, a, here's, a, here's a theological term for that. And it's, and it's very straightforward and simple. Baloney. <laughs> and the cheap stuff, not the beef baloney. <laughs> We're going through chapter 6. We're going through chapter 7. We're going through chapter 8. But we go through those chapters as blood bought. Christians. That's the point. Kind of the whole point. Let me show you some wonderful application from this. The other ones will be very short. The other two observations. But let me read from Mr. Brooks. Do not weep in the face of your great trials and troubles, your heartaches and afflictions. Listen. Every one of them is written in that scroll in the right hand of the one seated upon the throne as a part of the process needed for your refinement. Every one of them is written in the scroll. So every hardship a Christian goes through, if it's bereavement, he loses his loved one. If it's chronic sickness, financial distress, tribulation, persecution, relational hardship, you name it, they're all written in the scroll. Then he says this, the Lord would sanctify you, the Lord would sanctify to you your deepest distress, to use an old hymn writer's lovely phrase. That's in one of our hymns. If you have committed your poor helpless soul to the Savior, then remember that everything about your case and condition is safe in his hands. For the Lamb who saved you is the lion who protects you. The same hands 
This is my favorite phrase in this passage. He says, the same hand, I actually came up with this on the phone with somebody before I read this, but he gets the credit. The same hands that were nailed to the cross for your sins unfold your life's history day by day, and they do it with unerring wisdom and unfailing love so as to secure all the results that God has promised you and purposed for you. The way I put it was much simpler. Keep in mind the hands who open the scroll, which results in all of this hardship, is the hands that were pierced for you. The hands that open the scroll are pierced hands. That's what he's saying. And do not weep in the face of the sad and sorry state of the church with its heresies, divisions, and the many attacks of people upon it. Oh, mourn over it to be sure, but don't despair. For we shall see one day just how futile is the opposition of earth and hell to Jesus church he has not, has he not said i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it the second uh, observation is this all christians should be pitied if christ never prevailed because remember what's in the scroll but the salvation of god's people and the outworking of god's purposes and when john was for a minute under the impression there wasn't anybody who prevailed, anybody who's worthy enough to take the scroll. How did he respond, brethren? He responded in, by weeping and by lamentations. He wept bitterly because he feared there wasn't anybody who's worthy to what? To complete God's redemptive purposes. Brethren, it's the exact same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember where he says something like this. If Christ hasn't risen, your faith is, is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep have perished. And then he says this. In, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Why is it that a Christian is most pitiable if the Christian religion turns out to be a lie? Because they lived their whole life for one who didn't exist. And they endured all the tribulation of this world for no reason. They labored to keep their hands and hearts pure to no avail. And for all that, they anticipated heaven, which never comes. Perhaps I can say the reason why Christians would be most pitiable is because they had the highest expectations. And the highest expectations, brethren, wasn't their life now. It was the one to come. And then, of course, Paul goes on to say in the next verse, in 1 Corinthians 15, but he has risen. And, and you know what John says here? The exact same things. Because look, after he weeps, Verse 4, what do you find in verse 5? But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Thirdly, all Christians should worship Christ for his victorious work of redemption. 
Remember what I said last week, brethren, that this worship, this vision of worship in heaven, it affords us what a pattern which should be imitated on earth. If this is what the saints do in heaven, if this is what we're going to do in heaven for all eternity, then it ought to be what we do here on earth. And we ought to worship the Father for creation, chapter 4. And we ought to also and equally worship the Lamb for redemption. Brethren, this passage is, if Jesus isn't God, then this passage has a lot of problems with it. Because look at verse 14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. That, that phrase, him who lives forever and ever, was applied to the Father in chapter 4. Guess who it's applied to in chapter 5? The Lamb. And by the way, let me just say as an aside, this text also should suggest that it's in every way right, even as Paul said to the Corinthians, for a hearty congregational amen. The congregational amen. Brother, that's why we put the amen at the end of the hymns. Because of texts like this. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. Well, it's hard to leave this chapter, isn't it? Because it's all heavenly. But make sure you get it in you, brethren, because coming next week is a very big contrast. Well, some of the men were not able to come tonight, and one of my uh, leaders isn't here for our break.